Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class John Barkley. Barkley is serving with Kilo Company, part of the 4th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd Infantry Division during the First World War. Specifically, we're going to talk about actions on October 7th, 1918. That's right at the tail end of the conflict, although it's worth noting that Barkley and his men had no idea. Let's back it up and talk World War I at a high level to kind of paint the picture before we get to you know, fall or right at the end of the war in the fall of 1918. Now, as a disclaimer, what we're going to cover here in the next two, three, four, five minutes is one of the more complex times in world history, at least in the recent past. The start of the First World War and how it quickly spiraled into a global conflict is something that people spend their entire careers studying. All right. But we're going to give it a shot here in just a few minutes. The First World War kicked off in 1914 when the Austro-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand was traveling in Sarajevo and was assassinated by somebody named Gavrilo Princip. Gavrilo Princip. He was a Bosnian Serb nationalist, and you can assign a couple different um, titles to this man. He could have been a freedom fighter, could have been an insurgent, could have been a terrorist. Depending on where you sit at that time or even today, looking back, He could fit into any one of those categories. Nonetheless, Austria-Hungary is a pretty powerful country at this time. And when there's this Bosnian Serb nationalist that assassinates someone in their royal family, they have to do something about it. You have to react. And they present a set of terms that are to, to Bosnia that is not realistic. It's essentially a way of saying we're going to we're going to war unless you can meet these terms bosnia is not going to be able to do that so bosnia looks to their protector their big brother they look to russia and say hey russia looks like there's about to be a fight with this bigger country can you help us out russia again we're 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 oversimplifying this russia is going to back their little brother bosnia And then Austria-Hungary looks at this and says, well, hold on. We weren't really interested in fighting this Russian behemoth. So they look to their allies, their big brothers. Maybe big brother is not the right term. They look to Germany. Say, hey, Germany, you got our back, right? All these alliances and treaties we've signed, you're going to help us out if we go to war, right? Germany says, we got you. We got you, Austria-Hungary. But that's where it starts to get really complicated because when Germany looks at this conflict and the Germany at the time is going to have arguably the strongest military, um, at least on that side of the conflict, the French military and the German military, which is one of the reasons we end up in in stalemates and in in trench warfare without much progress. They're going to be pretty evenly matched, generally speaking, but the German military is top notch at this time. But they have an issue. Germany has Russia to their east. France to their west, bitter, bitter rivals. And they're concerned that if they get into a conflict, Germany, get into a conflict with Russia, A, it probably won't be real fast. But at its simplest, if they're distracted to their east, it exposes a French opportunity on their west. 
And there's so little trust that the concern is if we mobilize troops to the east, France might use that as an opportunity to do anything that they otherwise may not have. So when Germany is thinking about how they're going to engage in a large-scale conflict, which has been on the radar for quite a while. In fact, it's been a conversation within Germany, within a lot of countries, but especially Germany, they're looking at Russia and saying, hey, right now, they're not super strong, but they're on their way. We think we're going to have to fight them at some point. Is it better to do it today when they're still working their way up in terms of power and capability, or should we wait and kind of fingers crossed that it never happens. And you get, again, you get to put yourself in those shoes and think, what's the right way to do that? Are you looking for a conflict so you can kind of knock them down a peg and, and expand your, you know, your lead in terms of maybe the economy and, and global influence? Or do you kind of, hey, let's see if we might be able to get through a longer period of time without conflict. And it's not going to matter if you are, you know, quote, catching up. Nonetheless, that's a concern with Russia. So when the opportunity, and, and this is a little bit of a stretch, but when the opportunity presents itself, Germany says, okay, we have a plan. We've thought about this. And here's how the plan plays out. They're going to deal with Russia. They know that's going to be a big fight. They think they can win it, of course. And I think by itself, if Germany had simply fought Russia, that would have been a different a totally different outcome. And I think it's entirely likely that Germany may have been to a degree victorious in that conflict. It's hard to nail down exactly what the, the resolution would have looked like, but nonetheless to deal with Russia, which is a longer mobilization takes a while to get over there. Germany's plan, the Schlieffen plan, as it comes to be known is a quick blow to their West to knock out France first. So again, we know we're going to have to, in, in Germany's shoes, we're going to have to deal with Russia. If we can quickly knock out France, a knockout blow, you know, one punch, and they're done, at least set it back a ways, then we can divert our entire country's effort towards beating this giant Russian country. That's the general thought. So what you see in 1914 as war kicks off, and, and let me back up a little bit. Part of the thinking there is Russia takes a while to get ready. They're slow. We see this throughout a couple conflicts in history where kind of the Russian war machine gets moving, but it takes a while. They're known for taking a while when it comes to this. They're going to move faster in the First World War than expected, something that we'll see again in the Second World War. We'll think, man, they're going to take a long time to be able to blunt the Nazi advance during the Second World War, but they were kind of faster there too. Either way, Germany says, we know Russia is going to take a while. Let's go over here and knock out France. Literally, like knock out, knock them out of the conflict right away so we can focus our energy. Now, looking back, we can see that that might not have been realistic. But that doesn't mean that wasn't the plan. And it doesn't mean that it wasn't possible at various times throughout the conflict. So early 1914, there's going to be a German movement west. They're going to go through Belgium, which is going to cause a lot of other international outcries and and. To a degree, a lot of people kind of turning against Germany at the start of the conflict, essentially violating Belgium's neutrality um, to get to France. Germany's going to say, what are we supposed to do? We, we, we have to get to, you know, a, again, we're going to come back to this. It's a matter of life or death. Germany says this is a matter of life or death. What do you want us to do? We have to do this. That's going to be a theme. We're going to come back to here in a minute. 
So through 
the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare and sinking of American merchant ships in, in you have something called the Zimmerman telegram, where it's essentially a German plea to Mexico. It says, Hey, do you want to help us out here? We'll, we'll, uh, it, it's essentially asking a, you know, the United States neighbor to join the war on the other side. And it, it frustrates us, makes us angry. So we enter the war. The United States enters the war. I believe it is in April of 1918. Make sure I have that right. April of 1918, the United States entered the war, and we're going to see our first combat troops landing on continental Europe in the summer. Now that the United States has entered the war, Germany is going to make a last-ditch effort, essentially a last-ditch effort to win the conflict before the U.S. shows up on the continent. And there's a reason for this. You know, we like to, in the United States, point to this and say things like, we won the First World War, or, or we helped turn the tide. And like, it's, it's true that we helped to turn the tide, but it's, I love the analogy of a bar fight, where it's like we walked into a bar fight that had been going on for four years and threw a couple punches and the fight ended. It's really hard to say that we, you know, how much of a factor were we? We just came in when one of the sides was, was wobbling and barely able to stand. That's not to downplay the sacrifice, the effort of the American military, the American soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen, even at this point, right? But the U.S. involvement in the conflict is going to be just a small part. But the reason that it's so important is because of when it comes. If we look at, and this to me is still hard to get my head around, is the the casualty figures, the fatalities that are suffered throughout the First World War. If we look at the total military deaths, France is going to suffer 1.4 million military deaths in the First World War. That's the same amount the United States has suffered through every conflict in our history combined. How do you deal with that? Germany's at 2 million in just the First World War. 2 million killed. And that's including all sorts of other things, disease, sickness, and, and, and missing in action, of course. There were a lot of those in the First World War, but 2 million. So Germany... It's fair to say by the time the United States entered the war, really got boots on the ground in summer of 1918, Germany had suffered more killed than the United States would through its entire history to today. That's counting to 2020. The U.S. is around 1.3, 1.4 million total lost during, during wartime. How do you do that? Like, no wonder they're on their last leg. We would be. That's a crazy number of casualties. So when the, so Germany's going to have a spring offensive that says, let's try to end this thing before this fresh country comes in. If nothing else, the United States is going to be capable of, of absorbing casualties at a rate that maybe France can't anymore. Maybe England can't. Germany certainly can't. But if the United States just shows up and can just fight for longer, that might be the end of the war. It's worth remembering at this point as we move forward. So there's going to be a last-ditch German effort in the spring. It's going to be successful in some senses, unsuccessful in, in the sense that it doesn't end the war. The Americans are going to arrive. They're going to hold the line is a good way to say it. And there's going to be something called the 100 Days Offensive. The idea is that we're going to, um, at this point, we're, we're kind of looking for terms. Um, there's going to be some of Germany's allies starting to surrender and negotiate come October, come September. 
And by October 7th of 1918, we're barely a month out from November 11th, which will end the day that the First World War will end. But on October 7th, there are still major, major fights happening all up and down the Western Front. In one sector called Cunel, I'm probably mispronouncing that, it's about 15 miles north-northwest of Verdun, one of the nastiest and deadliest areas of the entire conflict. You're going to have Kilo Company, part of the 4th Infantry Regiment of the 3rd Infantry Division, set up along the line. Their lines aren't that far from the German lines. You'll see this throughout the conflict. In some places, they're going to be right on top of each other. The lines to where you could hear soldiers near the trench. Other times, it could be a mile or more apart. Cunel, they're going to be a little bit closer together. And in one of those observation points is a soldier named Private First Class John Barkley. We put these observation points out forward. And Barkley, in this case, is barely 50 meters from the enemy location. And there's a couple thoughts there. One, he serves as like a tripwire. If there's going to be an enemy attack, he can notify his guys, hey, here they come. But he also can potentially watch whatever the enemy might be doing. It's risky though, right? Because if you're 50 meters away, you can see them. They can see you. They can shoot you. 50 meters well within range for an enemy sniper to knock out an observation point. Incredibly risky posting to be in an observation point. Nonetheless, as October 7th, 1918, as the day begins, Barclay's in his observation point watching the German lines and he starts to see an attack materialize. Now, one of the challenges in the First World War is there are major offensives, right? So there's going to be major, major battles at times throughout the conflict, but you also have a lot of small scale battles, a lot of positional battles, trying to take a little territory here or there. In October of 1918, that's going to be a major play on all sides because negotiations are right around the corner. And even though we're still fighting in France, worth remembering, Germany is one month away from signing an agreement to end the war, not on their terms. Germany's not fighting a defensive battle in Germany. They're still to a degree in October on the offensive in France. It's kind of weird to think about, right? Germany's going to lose the war while fighting an offensive campaign in another country. Nonetheless, you're, you're still going to see a lot of these little engagements, little in comparison to some of the larger offensives throughout the war, but still major, major fights. That's what we're seeing on October 7th, 1918, with Private First Class Barkley. He sees this attack start to materialize, so he goes to radio his men. Say, hey, here they come. But that telephone wire's been cut. Not crazy relatively common during this type of conflict. They would run wire from one position to another, but then with the shell fire. In fact, some shell fire was designed simply to do that, simply to cut the communications wires ahead of an enemy attack, ahead of an attack. So the wire's been cut. So Barkley looks out over no man's land and sees a couple things. There's an abandoned French tank stuck out there. Not, not usable, maybe partially destroyed, maybe partially burned out, but it's out there, not far from his position. He also sees a damaged German machine gun. So Barkley jumps up, runs forward, grabs the damaged machine gun and as much ammunition as he can possibly carry and moves into that abandoned tank. Again, the tank's not functional. Might've been blown up, might've just been stuck, whatever it is, but at least has armor. And Barkley's going to set up shot. Now, it's always impressive when somebody's able to, to me, I'm always impressed when somebody's able to fix 
weapons that they might not be very familiar with. So for a U.S. Army soldier today to be able to fix an M4 and M16, good. I hope that you could do, to some degree, troubleshoot that problem. But to pick up an enemy's weapon and be able to, under pressure, right? The Germans are attacking right now, advancing across no man's land. Under pressure, for Barkley to be able to pick up that machine gun, move it into a covered position, repair it, and wait is awesome. Barkley waits. He waits because the enemy, the Germans in this case, don't know that he's in the tank. And he waits until they come alongside the tank. You know, think again, World War I, almost throughout the conflict, we're going to be advancing in waves across the battlefield. You know, not just one column, but an entire wave of infantry trying to find a gap in the lines, trying to find a weak point in the lines, is a better way to say it. As they get alongside the tank, very close range, Barkley opens fire. He opens fire. They don't know he's there. He's in a relatively covered and concealed position and just decimates some of the German ranks. It, it breaks up the attack in this portion of the line and they kind of start to fall back and have to reorganize. But this machine gun out there in the middle of no man's land that nobody knew about, well, it gets the attention of the Germans. So they start firing at it with their 77 millimeter field guns and pretty, pretty quickly score a direct hit. That's the risk that Barkley's taking, right? He, he might have a covered position out there in the open, but as soon as he opens fire, what are you going to do? I mean, that's, that's the kind of the moral of the story, if you will. He's, he's essentially sacrificing himself going forward into this position. Miraculously, he's not killed with that direct hit. He's able to stay in the tank, continue to set up his machine gun, reload, and get ready. So now the Germans have hit that tank. They've reorganized and they're coming back because, hey, we destroyed that bunker, if you will, that tank that had the enemy machine gunner in it. Let's go. They start their attack again, but Barkley is still in that position, hidden, waiting. And once more, when they come up upon his side, he opens fire and again just decimates entire German ranks, causing the attack to stall out and have to move back into their lines to reorganize. Because of this, Barclay's unit was able to organize a counterattack and began pushing back into the German lines. Barclay single-handedly pushed back that attack multiple times, allowing that to happen. And for that action, Private First Class John Barclay would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Barclay would survive the war, would make it home, and live until age 70 when he passed away in 1966. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.